it's easy to you know to have fun running a movie studio during World War II when even RKO made money, you know. But after the war, when the box office starts going down, oh, like eight or eight percent a year, <laughs> out of nowhere, you know, and 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 nothing is working really. That's when you can tell who was、uh, really prepared. Out of the silver shadows and into the clear lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. There are episodes where I have to work to find a thematic connection between the segments, and then there's this episode, which is about studios with century in their name. I talked to Scott Eamon about 20th Century Fox, and Thomas Reeder about the Century Comedy Studio. Keep up with what's new from Films First Century by subscribing at the podcast app of your choice, and if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. New York, immense throngs, unprecedented in the annals of blasé Broadway, turn out at the gala premiere of a great picture. The roadshow engagement of in old Chicago, Hollywood. Thousands of fans jam the streets for blocks and greet their favorite screen stars with tumultuous applause, as renowned celebrities attend these brilliant occasions to pay tribute to the screen's mightiest achievements. Here is Alice Faye with Joseph M. Skink and Gregory Ratoff, Mr. and Mrs. Jean Herschel, Donna Michi, Victor McLaughlin, Janet Gaynor. Henry King, Constance Bennett, Daryl F. Zanuck, Alice Brady, Warner Baxter, Loretta Young, Tyrone Power, Alice Fay, and Tony Martin. It is undoubtedly the most instantly recognizable piece of music that says, "The movies." Alfred Newman's Fanfare was originally written for a studio that only lasted in its original incarnation for about two years: Daryl F. Zanuck's Twentieth Century Pictures. In 1935, Twentieth Century merged with the much larger but flailing Fox studio, and it's been the Twentieth Century Fox Fanfare ever since. A rare Episcopalian among the Jewish moguls, Zanuck compared to any of them for drive and chutzpah. A story that frequent guest Scott Eamon tells in Twentieth Century Fox, Daryl F. Zanuck and the creation of the modern film studio, from TCM and Running Press. Eamon normally writes biographies of people like Cary Grant, Ernst Lubitsch, and Cecil B. DeMille. So I started by asking him why he chose this time to write about a company, as well as the matched pair of protean moguls who built it, William Fox and Daryl Zanuck. Well, I tend to gather strength. Uh, for long periods of time on subjects that interest me, and some of them get converted into some of the file folders get converted into books, and some of them don't. 
Uh, and this came about in late 2019 when the pandemic was coming down. And I suspected it was going to be bad. I had no idea just how bad it was going to be, however. If I'd known how bad it was going to be, I wouldn't have uh, I've written a book. I would have gone into a cave someplace. You know? <laughs> uh, but I knew it was going to be worse than what we were being told. So I, I started looking through my file folders to see what, because I understood if, if this was what I thought it was going to be, everything was going to be closed. It was just, it was going to be a wipeout and for an indefinite period of time, uh, including libraries. So that was going to be a logistical problem, a creative and logistical problem. So I started looking through my file folders to see what I had that was interesting uh, and that I could see uh, doing for, say, six months. <laughs> six months. Uh, and lo and behold, I, I went through the, the Fox file and, uh, you know, some of the, the interviews I thought were interesting. And I've always loved Zanuck. I've always liked his films. When he was running production at Warner's, I loved the gangster pictures he was doing. 42nd Street musicals, uh, and I loved the way he reinvented himself at Fox because he didn't have the uh, he didn't have the personnel at Fox that he had at Warner Brothers. So you had to completely go in a different direction, uh, which is something that very few people have the uh, adaptability to do. So I just thought he was a, a hugely influential and, and major filmmaker and awfully smart, whip smart, whip smart. And I liked his level of aggression too. Almost all those guys had had a certain level of aggression. Uh, and the ones that survived the longest were the most aggressive. They weren't the smartest necessarily. I don't think anybody ever thought Jack Warner was brilliant, but he was extremely aggressive and, and, and could work angles, you know, and, uh, of all the moguls, all that founding generation of moguls, Warner lasted the longest and stayed the most relevant the longest. I mean, everybody else is going belly up in the 1950s and floundering and he's finding Natalie Wood and James Dean. And, and figuring out a way to make Warner Brothers uh, stay, in the, stay in the game. And I have endless admiration for that kind of, of refusal, refusal to quit. Um, and Zanuck had some of those same qualities until old age, except he wasn't really that old, until age and decrepitude and senility began creeping up on him. Uh, so I thought uh, the, the work could justify a book. Uh, and I sat down and started plowing through it, basically. Just, just working off my notes and interviews that I'd done years and years ago. So that's a long answer to a short question. At that point, had Fox been acquired by Disney? No. Uh, they were just about to be acquired, I believe. I believe. You kind of got the ending to your book. That just gave me, that gave me the last five pages of the book, basically, as opposed to just trying to come up with something uh, on my own. It was a natural coda to the book. Who were the primary sources that you could turn to? I mean, you talk about having interviewed Jean Renoir back in the 70s, so there's one. But I assume people like Richard Zanuck and David Brown. Right, I talked to them. I had two interviews with Richard Zanuck. The best one I had with Richard Zanuck was on the set of Cocoon, which was shot over in St. Petersburg. So I drove over to do a set story. And Ron Howard was, I talked to Ron Howard for 15 minutes, you know. But Zan, when, you're, when a director's shooting, the producer really doesn't have anything to do. So Zanuck and I spent an hour and a half walking around the location, uh, just chatting about Hollywood, the Hollywood he grew up in, the Hollywood he's working in now, uh, his father a little bit, um, Orson Welles a little bit. Uh, just I sort of just did an inventory of Richard Zanuck's career and past. And he was a really smart guy and, re and a really interesting guy and a very good producer, I thought. Although he didn't have that uh, compulsive drive thing that his father had. He was a more laid back guy. 
you know. Also, I was talking to him at a, at a point in his career when he was in cruise control. You know, he'd made the Jaws, he'd made the Sting. He didn't have to prove himself to anybody anymore, you know. Right. And uh, uh, he had his company with uh, David Brown, and they were extraordinarily successful for the most part. And he was very relaxed. If I'd talked to Richard Zanuck in 1962, I might have found an entirely different person, you know. But he, he gave me a lot of insight into his father and how his father operated the studio and and things like that. Yeah, no, I think that's what you see in the book. His accounts of his father suggest that he was terrified by him and somewhat appalled by him. And really having to figure out who he was bearing that name, but not being exactly who his father was. Well, he wasn't exactly who his father was. Uh, he had a different personality and a different skill set. Uh, but he was, uh, like his father, he was extremely successful in an extremely difficult business. But uh, I don't think he had the four o'clock, uh, the, the daily four o'clock uh, siesta that his father had. <laughs> uh, he was just a different generation and a much more gen. I mean, he went to college, you know, uh, and, and Zanuck barely got out of high school. And I mean, barely got out of high school. Right. And, and, and he got his education on the streets and in the streets of Los Angeles. I mean, as a rivet catcher, for God's sakes, he came up the hard way, like all those guys did. You sure. know, I mean, most of those guys, you know, worked in the theater business. They started out with real estate and then branched off into into production as a means of providing product for the theaters. Uh, and I don't think William Fox really cared that much about movies. That's why he delegated it to, uh, you know, some poor bastard uh, that worked for him and who he could terrorize. Uh, but I don't think Adolf Zucker cared that much about movies either. Adolf Zucker was a real estate guy. Uh, there was that aspect of, and, and Mayer, L.B. Mayer started out as a real, as a theater guy too, um, but Mayer was passionately interested in movies, uh, in, 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 in the content of the movies, in the style of his movies. I don't really know that Zucker was. Zucker, Zucker depended on Jesse Lasky to run production for a long time, and when Jesse Lasky uh, lost his box office touch, Jesse Lasky got liquidated very quickly, and Zucker was still standing. Uh, that was, Zucker was not a man to mess with. Uh, and Zanuck didn't come up through theaters. He didn't care about real estate. He didn't really care about money, particularly. Uh, he only cared about making movies. He was a lot more like Monroe Starr, I think, than uh, Scott Fitzgerald's right. uh, character, uh, Thalberg was. Uh, I mean, Thalberg was more, I mean, Monroe Starr is more, has a dreamy aspect to him that Zanuck did not have. Yeah. But what Monroe Starr cared about was making movies, and that's all he cared about. And the same you could say the same thing about Daryl Zanuck. Well, it's interesting. I thought about that Fitzgerald quote about how nobody has the whole equation of movies in his head. But Zanuck okay. seems like he comes the closest of anybody. I mean, he could fix a script just by pacing in his office and mm -hmm. working it out. He could fix a movie in the editing room. And for a long time, he had a golden touch for what audiences wanted. But more than that, it changed over time. I mean, you say that about that. You say that about him going from Warner Brothers to Fox. At Warner Brothers, he had invented, you know, really like the street smart movie, and he found the stars to make it happen. Mm -hmm. But he arrived at Fox, and basically, he's only got Shirley Temple and Will Rogers. I mean, find the gangster movie in those two. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah, no, not going to happen. Not going to happen. And Will Rogers gets killed almost immediately. Right. He loses him almost immediately. I mean, just imagine that day. You've acquired the studio for about a month, and oh, hey, Daryl, bad news. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost a scene from a, or, or a Warner Brothers, uh, uh, you know, a nasty farce from 1932, you know, <laughs> with Jimmy Cagney as Zanuck. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's just interesting that he evolves the studio a number of times. I mean, it's not in your book, but I remember reading that like when in old Chicago won a couple of Oscars, he was sort of like, yeah, that's nice, but we're kind of just making crap here. Uh, we need to we need to make movies that are about serious subjects, and he and he does it. I mean, within a couple of years, he's making the Grapes of Wrath. But see, the, the interest the, the, you find out what people are made of in a crisis. Uh, it's easy to you know to have fun running a movie studio during World War II when even RKO made money. You know, <laughs> uh, it, it, it wasn't that hard because there was nothing else. People had to get out of the house, and there was nothing else to do unless they wanted to go bowling or catch a baseball game. So that was it. You you went to the movies. Uh, but after the war, when the box office starts going down, oh, like eight or eight percent a year <laughs> out of nowhere, you know, and, and, and nothing is working really. That's when you can tell who, who was, uh, really prepared and who's not and who you'd want to be in a foxhole with and who you don't want to be in a foxhole with. And I mean, Zanuck really kept that studio going. He placed a huge bet on CinemaScope. It worked. I don't think it necessarily worked creatively or artistically, but it certainly worked commercially. And now we present the vice president in charge of production for 20th Century Fox, the only three-time winner of the Motion Picture Academy's Irving Thalberg Award, the only three-time winner of the Oscar for the best motion picture production of the year, Daryl F. Zanuck. In my opinion, CinemaScope is the most remarkable development in the world of entertainment in the last 20 years. Every picture we produce henceforth will be filmed in this revolutionary CinemaScope process. We of 20th Century Fox are proud of the robe. We are proud of CinemaScope. And we have the sincere belief that you will share our enthusiasm when the robe plays this theater. And it bought them time, which is what you want in a crisis. Sometimes you just have to keep the cars moving around the table and stall. And, and if you take the long view of widescreen and cinemascope, it's a stall. It didn't really solve any of the problems. Uh, the television and the uh, consent decree where they lost the theaters and the un-American activities crisis, it didn't solve any of that because the audience continued uh, uh, to drop, although not as precipitously, but it continued to drop incrementally. Uh, so it, 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 but it was a brilliant evasion of, of, of and a way to lure people back into the theater, if only for five or six years, until uh, uh, the thrill of the new wore off, you know? And I mean, that's that's no small thing. That is no small thing. Right. When you've got planes and, you know, you got bombs dropping all about you to be able to, to push $10 million to the center of the table and say, call. That, that takes some courage. Let's go back. I mean, much of the book is about Zanuck, but let's talk about William Fox. I mean, who's a somewhat similar figure, uh-huh. a fairly appalling human in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, there's a number of quotes that are like, what do I need friends for? I have bags of money. <laughs> Thank you, Ebenezer Scrooge. Yeah, yeah. But he figures out, you know... How to sell movies. I mean, like like the Theta Bear movies, which unfortunately we can't see. But Fox kind of gets a reputation for selling sex. But he would find something that worked and then he would pound it into the ground. He didn't he couldn't take a performer to the next level, whether it was Theta Barra or Tom Mix or William Farnham. You know, he would simply pound them into the ground until the audience just said, threw up their hands and said, Enough already. You know, yeah. he and, and but that's what separates a great studio head from a hack, essentially. 
if, if a performer strikes a chord, that could be luck, you know. Uh, but can you can you adapt and, and create something that's more than what you started out with? And Fox didn't really do that. And it was the same thing with Janet Gaynor, uh, you know, 10 years later after Theta Barra. They found an actress who kind of incarnated a younger uh, but equally sweet and uh, 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 Mary Pickford kind of uh, uh, character. Um, although I think Gaynor is less, has less backbone as a performer, as an actress, than Pickford had. Also, in terms of characterization, she's more of a passive, uh, uh, a passive character. A, a Gaynor character is more passive than a Pickford character is. But I think she attracted much the same audience, you know, and performed much the same function for that audience. And again, Fox beats her into the ground. It's the same thing over and over again, three, four pictures a year. And after four or five years, you can begin to see a softening, you know, commercial softening, because nothing is being done to broaden her out. That took David O. Selznick and put her in A Star Is Born. Now, her career didn't last much longer than that, because I think she wanted to get out. Uh, but certainly, she showed she could do more than the kinds of pictures Fox was designing around her when she went over to Selznick and did The Young at Heart and, and Star is Born. Uh, and also she was getting, she was not 22 anymore. You know, she was in her middle 30s at this point. And, and it, it, that, that's always a crucial, in that era, that was the beginning of the end, let's face it. In 40, you know, you were, you were lucky to get Mary Astor parts. Yeah, imagine Janet Gaynor in the Maltese Falcon. I don't see it. I, I, don't, I, I don't see it. Yeah, at one point, I mean, he just flat out says, movie stars have five years and then they're done. Yeah. And I, I see, I think Fox saw actors as short-term investments. He was looking for a quick turn and to get his profits and get out and get out of the next thing. As if he was built, moving from one theater to another. And each theater was bigger and more lavish and he could and could, could uh, uh, coin more money than the previous theater. I think he saw actors as, as basically performing the same function. And once, they, once their uh, commercial appeal started to, to drop, he'd, dro he'd dump them as fast as he could and get out of the next one. Because there's always the next one. There's always another one that you can that might that's in the same vogue or in the same something of the same style that you can that you might be able to build up. And nobody, if you bat even three hundred, you're doing well in the movie business in terms of finding and promoting actors. Right. You know because they could they could sign you know sign people for 150 bucks a week, sign 20 people a year to 150 bucks a week, and if three of them work out, they're fine because they haven't really spent that much money. <laughs> on signing those 20, you know? Now, the interesting thing about Fox is that he did decide at some point that he wanted to be an artist, and he was quite successful at it, I mean, artistically. He brought Murnau over, and Murnau made Sunrise, but more than that, Borzaghi and Ford both turned into Murnau, so all his top directors were directing in a German expressionist, dreamy kind of style. Exactly. And to me, that's exactly. a pretty strong stretch of some of the best silence ever made, those late 20s Fox silence. I agree. I agree. I love those pictures. I love all of them, no matter who's directing them. You know, uh, even Raoul Walsh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even Raoul Walsh took a dance with, with, that, with the house style and did just fine with it. And I, 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 nobody's found a memo from Fox saying, uh, everybody, I want you all to do what Murnau's doing, what Fred's doing. Uh, I think it might have just been all, all, all the guys recognized they had Babe Ruth on their team. And so they're trying to model their swing after Babe Ruth. And using his sets. I mean, if that you're going to shoot four sons on the sets of Sunrise, you might start thinking about using them the way Murnau did. Well, that wouldn't have, wouldn't have upset Fox uh, because, after all, that was, he was spending a lot of money on Murnau's sets. So 
he probably expected them to you know get more than one uh, one showing. So Fox was really up and coming as the most artistically interesting studio head. Well, I think. See, I, I you, you say you say he he decided he wanted to be an artist. I think I think he decided he wanted he, he wanted recognition. I don't, and, and the only way to get recognition was to be an artist. Okay. In that era, you know, he was already making successful movies. He was making a lot of money. That wasn't the problem. But you know, you're you you, you can only go so far with the Johnstown Flood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and the Iron Horse showed him the way forward in that the Iron Horse is about something more than the plot. Now, Ford is an interesting case at Fox because I feel like in a lot of ways they recognized him as a great asset, but not to the extent that they used him as well as they could have. I mean, through that period, it's a real mixed bag of stuff. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And it, and it continued to be. It didn't really he didn't really start to get any careful handling until Zanuck got there, even in. As late as 1932, 33, he's directing uh, god-awful things like The Brat. Yeah, you know, right. Which could have been directed by Irving Cummings or anybody. It didn't need John Ford. There's nothing John Ford can do with that material in that cast. But he was, you know, they thought of him as uh, a, a guy who could, who could be a good soldier. And they also thought of him as a guy who had the capability of being an artist. But we don't have that many scripts for artists. So <laughs> here's, here's The Brat. Have fun, you know. Uh, and he and because he came up at Universal, uh, you know, directing uh, two reelers and and then five reelers, uh, you know, in in a couple of weeks, uh, he was not necessarily averse to that. He didn't start making demands on himself as an artist until Zanuck gets to Fox, and then you don't see the brat. You know, you see submarine uh, submarine command, which is a terrible picture, but yeah. but that's really the last picture Ford makes that you could consider. Uh, a routine studio assignment, and that's 1938. After that, after that, he's off and running, and and treated accordingly as an artist by Zanuck and by the industry and by Ford himself. He starts making demands on himself that he didn't always make before. Well, getting back to Fox, William Fox, here he is, top of the world, and he makes a play to take over the entire industry, mm-hmm. which runs into a little thing called the stock market crash. Right. Right. Yeah. And and. It all comes tumbling down because on the day after the crash, everything that he'd spent a huge amount of money on was worth about 25% less than what he paid for it. And it only got worse. So it, it became a slow motion collapse that was impossible to, to stop, essentially. Uh, he was just a victim of, of hubris on the one hand and atrocious timing on the other hand. And he couldn't have, he could, nobody could have foreseen, well, some people foresaw the stock market crash, they say. <laughs> I, 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 I question that. Nobody's ever called uh, any huge uh, 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 financial industry catastrophe. Uh, you know, there's always somebody who comes out six months or a year later and says, I wrote this in a blog post, yeah. uh, you know, 14 months, and here's the blog post. Well, yeah, okay, fine. Thanks very much. And nobody ever and he wrote, wrote it 12 before. other times, too. Right, exactly, exactly. Uh, because, I mean, every day on every... Every day I see some publication called, called Business Insider, uh, 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 and this has been going on for well over uh, several years now, prophesying uh, the next stock market collapse, you know. And if you follow Business Insider, you, you, you've lost a lot of money. Now, eventually, Business Insider will be absolutely correct, and they will, and they will promote that one headline that came before the week before the crash, you know. They won't be mentioning the 75 headlines they put out uh, uh, that had that there was no crash whatsoever. 
Now, what I thought was interesting, and it, it kind of runs as an undercurrent in the story at this point, was Nick Skank's machinations to control the movie industry. First, he's the one who makes Fox's attempt to corner the industry possible by planning to sell Lowe's to him. Sure, sure. But then a few years later, you know, Fox is running rudderless under Winfield Sheehan, still making interesting arty pictures, you know, the zoo in Budapest and I Am Suzanne's, but not making money. No, they're commercial, uh, steady flow of commercial flops. Yeah, and then Skank kind of maneuvers the takeover of Fox by Zanuck, who had started 20th Century Pictures. Right, with Joe. With with Joe. With Joe Chke. Yeah. Yeah, it's always fun to me to see the 20th Century logo without Fox in it. There's like, what, 20 movies before? Yeah, and and, and now it's going to be there again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you hang around long enough, everything, every, the, the merry-go-round comes back, comes back around. And oddly, Louis B. Mayer is central to starting 20th Century Fox. Explain why that is, because it's it's pretty funny. Well, it, it is funny. Uh, Mayer had two daughters. Uh, Irene uh, Mayer Selznick was married to David O. Selznick, who even in 1935 was extremely uh, successful. He was running RKO and was about to hop over, or already had hopped over to MGM to produce David Copperfield, A Tale of Two Cities, on his way to starting up Selznick International and Rebecca and going for win. So he was already uh, a, a, a seriously respected filmmaker. Uh, on the other hand, uh, his other daughter, uh, Edie, was married to Bill Getz, William Getz, who was uh, not a schlub exactly, but he wasn't, he didn't have Selznick star quality and he wasn't as ambitious as, as Selznick and he wasn't as uh, 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 driven and, and talented as Selznick. So, Mayer had this this problem with making Edie happy and and trying to get his other son-in-law to live up to the standards set by David Selznick. So basically what he did was he gave uh, uh, Joe Schenk a certified check for $100,000 for the new company uh, with the proviso that Bill Getz would be Xanax number two, uh, which was a fairly prestigious job because everybody in the business respected Xanax hugely. And and uh, Xanax thought, uh, Xanax's phrase for Bill Getz was a... Uh, uh, a, a, a thumbtack <laughs> that that you you know he, that he wasn't he didn't serve a creative function he, he served a bureaucratic function but you didn't want to give him control over production in any way he said well you know Bill Bill Getz can change the rolls of toilet paper in the men's room that's fine if he wants to come to work for me you know uh, there's all there's plenty of work to do at a movie studio for people who aren't brilliant or creative. Uh, but, but, and it, but let's keep that $100,000 check by all means. <laughs> and $100,000 in 1935 is, you know, probably a couple, well over a right. million dollars today, probably closer to $2 million today. So it was not a small amount of money. Uh, and and, and it, they were still fighting the Depression. They were not out of the Depression in 1935. So it, every bit helped. So that was essentially how Bill Gates came to be Xanax number two at 20th Century Fox until Zanuck went off to war uh, beginning in 1942, and then uh, Getz took over as head of production uh, until Zanuck came back from the war, at which point Zanuck pushed all of Getz's scripts off the desk and into the garbage can, and Getz stormed out of the building. <laughs> uh, and went into independent production. He set up a unit, uh, an operation called International Pictures, uh, which made The Stranger with Orson Welles and uh, Gary Cooper's Along Came Jones and a couple other pictures some of which were successful, most of which weren't. Uh, and then he merged with Universal uh, and the Universal Inter became Universal International, which was extremely successful. So Bill Getz uh, eventually proved himself and made 
uh, some pretty good pictures, especially in the 50s. Man from Laramie, he did uh, he, he did some decent pictures. Uh, but, you know, David Selznick, no, he wasn't David Selznick. Well, getting back to Zanuck, during wartime, which apparently he enjoyed enormously. Oh, sure. Well, it, had everything, it had everything he enjoyed. It had, it had violence. You know, he's living at Claridge's in London, which is not too shabby. You know, so, so you know, sure, you're in the middle of the London Blitz, but on the other hand, the wine list is still very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's got, it's, it's got danger. It's got everything that would excite him. And I'm sure starlets in some fashion. In some fashion, we can presume that. Yeah. It's a whole new country for the picking. Yeah, I, 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 I don't think he could turn off his libido for more than 48 hours, probably. I remember somebody once, you know, maybe in like parade or something, but they were basically asked who was the horniest mogul. And the answer was, imagine a line with Daryl Zanuck at one end and Walt Disney at the other. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably true. Probably accurate. And Zanuck would have been proudly said, yeah, that's about right. And also just reading about playing polo. I mean, he was an incredibly aggressive polo player and he finally gives it up when he gets injured. Somebody smacks a ball into his face. Yeah. Broke his nose. Yeah. It was horrible. And then croquet. I mean, the description of croquet, it's not, you know, it's not this placid kitty game the way he played it. It's pretty vicious. It is. It is. It's, 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 it's brutal. It is actually, it's brutal. I played it. The national croquet centers here in West Palm Beach. Uh, so I've been on those courts and yeah, it it can be brutal. If you take the game seriously, it can be brutal. Yeah. I mean, just as a personality, he's kind of frightening, but you have to respect the results. I mean, at least the one thing I'll give, give him is he seemed to respect top creative talent. I mean, he kind of came a cropper with Jean Renoir, but he brings in Joseph L. Mm -hmm. Mankiewicz. He brings in Elia Kazan, though he gives away on the waterfront because he can't do it in Cinemascope. But, you know, pretty top talent working at the top of their game. When Laura Z. Hobson's great story, Gentleman's Agreement, first appeared serially in Cosmopolitan magazine, its 20 million readers were startled at its daring. As a book, Gentleman's Agreement still leads all bestseller lists month after month. And now, as a motion picture, Gentleman's Agreement is accorded the highest honor a picture can be given. Here we see its producer, Daryl F. Zanuck, receiving the Academy Award for the best picture of the year. Well, he knew, he understood that you have to let top talent alone. You know, I mean, you you, you can look at, uh, he let Ford be Ford. I mean, my darling Clementine, you know, it's pure Ford. It's it's absolutely pure Ford. Uh, Mankiewicz, all about Eve and Letter to Three Wives is pure Mankiewicz. Uh, Lubitsch, he brings Lubitsch over. Heaven can wait is pure Lubitsch. He didn't, uh, uh, once he approved the script and with the director he respected, the director was on his own. He wasn't going to hover and, and, and start sending nasty notes about rushes, you know, because you, you just can't do that with A-list talent. Now with B-list talent, uh, it was a different issue, but, uh, he, he respected, he respected, uh, uh, top-notch filmmakers as he had to, if he was going to attract top-notch filmmakers, because nobody's going to go over there and work for him because everybody knew he was tough on script and you had to get past this, 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 this Maginot line of, 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 uh, machine guns, uh, in terms of getting the script approved and getting it exactly right. But they also understood that once he said the script was good, you were on your own. He wasn't going to hover and, and wasn't going to look over your shoulder and it wasn't going to be the death of a thousand cuts like it was at MGM where everything was done by committee at Fox. It was a committee of one. 
Yeah, but it could be tough getting there. I mean, as you say, a letter to three wives started as a letter to four wives until Zanuck eliminated one of the couples. But that's beautiful. That's a beautiful story. It's such a beautiful story. I've always thought it was phony, but I believe it's true. I, I, don't, I don't doubt it was true because it's exactly if you look at Man, if you look at Mankiewicz when he goes wrong, it's always because it's too prolix. It's always because he's he's he falls in love with the sound of his own voice. Well, he was always in love with the sound of his own voice. That's that's but but it goes it gets out of control, you know, and he doesn't know when to stop. That's the whole problem with Cleopatra. It, it, he, he, he he's not the director a for that story. He's a, it's a very terrible choice of director for that story. But B, he's trying to write a script that doesn't work to the strengths of his cast of Taylor and Burton. And it doesn't work to the strengths of what the people want to see in a movie called Cleopatra. Yeah, I've always thought that, you know, only Rex Harrison had the appropriately bitchy quality that suited yeah. a Mankiewicz script for Cleopatra. Because he's playing the same part Rex Harrison always played. <laughs> Rex Harrison didn't deviate all that much, generally speaking. And that's why we love him. You know, he he played he played with a sort of world weariness and a and a sense of authority, moral authority, practical authority. And he didn't suffer fools gladly. In that sense, it was an authentic projection of his personality. You know, he didn't have any patience. <laughs> so, you know, Harrison's perfect to play Caesar. You couldn't cast that picture better today if you were looking for an actor to play Caesar. They'd get somebody like Anthony Hopkins, some, you know, burnt out case. Yeah. Uh, one of those exhausted 80-year-old English character actors, you know, who coast on their reputations for 30 years. Uh, or Ian McKellen or somebody like that. But no, you have to have some, you have to bring some energy to it. And Harrison, always, until the very end of his life, always had that energy. Um, well, let's talk about, I mean, Fox in the 60s pretty much sums up what studios were going through at the time. First of all, Zanuck is sort of chased out by the legendary Spiros Skouras, uh -huh. which is one of those names I've learned first from Mad Magazine. <laughs> you, don't, you don't hear that name a lot these days. Right, but it was in the, in the pop culture air back then. Yeah. yeah. So what exactly happened? Well, uh, Zanuck basically burned out. He got, uh, after the flush of Cinemascope, basically saved Fox. Uh, he disliked the way the business was going in the 50s where actors were getting percentages of, of not just net, but of gross and not assuming any financial risk. This drove him nuts. It also drove, it drove all that generation nuts. But Jack Warner realized basically rolled over and lived with it. You know, this is the, 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 this is the business we have chosen. The business has changed. Therefore I will change too. It was, it was a very simple syllogism as far as Jack Warner was concerned. Zanuck couldn't swallow it. It just drove him batty. Uh, cause he felt a lot of the creative function was being usurped by agents, which in fact it was, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> Gee, actors, you get that idea. I know. And actors like Burt Lancaster, who, who set up their own companies and who basically took control of their own careers by choosing their own scripts. Well, what do you need a studio head for if you're going to do that? And sometimes Lancaster chose brilliantly and sometimes he didn't, but he, he, he it was his choice. He, that's what he wanted to want to run his career. And this drove Zanuck nuts because it did it it rendered him irrelevant. Uh, I think he understood that on an emotional level. I'm not sure he understood it on an intellectual level, but I think he understood it emotionally. Uh, because if you've got agents making creative decisions and actors making creative decisions, what do you need a studio head for, really, to turn the lights on and off at, at, at morning at night? I mean, uh, to, to to rent the hall so they can shoot the movie on the on the lot. Well, you don't need me. You don't need Daryl Zanuck to do that, you know. 
and so he, 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 and also he'd been working 60 and 80 hour weeks for 25, 30 years. And he was designated ready for his bout of middle age crazy, which was abused. So he decided he wanted to quit Fox to go into independent production, which didn't work out too well. Uh, he made The Sun Also Rises, which made a little money. He made three or four pictures that made no money whatsoever. Uh, but he was having fun in Paris with his girlfriends. Uh, and then he got the bright idea to make The Longest Day, which in fact made a lot of money. And it's a pretty good picture, I think. I think it's underrated even now. There are really good sequences in The Longest Day, and I think it holds together quite well. Uh, and which brought a lot of money back into Fox. And it did help make up some of the money that was going out to shoot Cleopatra. But on the other hand, they were going broke from Cleopatra and from Spiros Skouros's other other uh, 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 flailing attempts to run a movie studio. So it seemed like a good idea to Zanuck and to his ego uh, to come back and take over again and 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 be uh, ride to the rescue like the cavalry. Uh, it didn't work out long term. It worked out short term. Uh, but that's what he wanted, and he installed Richard, his son, as head of production because he didn't want to do it anymore. He didn't want to live in Hollywood anymore. He didn't, there was nobody in Hollywood he wanted to have dinner with. He stayed in New York uh, or Paris uh, and just, you know, operated with phone calls and, and telexes. Much like William Fox way back when. Yes, exactly. And that's part of the problem. That was part of the problem. Uh, because if you're not going to run the studio, you can't run the studio. <laughs> it's really very simple. And he really didn't want to run the studio. That's why he wasn't doing headed production. But he thought Richard could be his proxy and he could basically... Here's ten. Here's here's five scripts. Richard put them into production. You know that kind of thing. And Richard would do it. But Richard had a mind of his own. And Richard also was of a different generation. And I think he realized that his father's taste was slowly becoming, not irrelevant, but shall we say, slightly passe. Okay. And so they they begin and they begin butting heads. And you couldn't butt heads with Daryl Zanuck. Not if you were not if you were an actor. Not if you were his son. You know he was an alpha male and he expected to get his way. And by God, he got his way, and he ended up firing his own son, <laughs> which Richard, even in his own old age, uh, had not really gotten over. I mean, it seems like those guys came up in a world where 20 movies were happening at once, and then it's a percentages game. Right. And by the 60s, it's not quite one movie at a time, but when one of the movies is Cleopatra, it kind of is. Yeah, it is. Well, you're making, instead of making, you're not making 30 or 40 movies, you're making 12 or 15. You know, uh, so it's a different, it, 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 it is a, it's a different game. And the movies, each movie would had to be more of an event in order to get people out of their homes and into the theaters. Well, and really the movie that mattered at that particular moment was The Sound of Music. It sure did. It sure did. It kind of didn't matter what else they were doing. And later on, all those things that wanted to be The Sound of Music but weren't. There are a dozen pictures, Dr. Doolittle, Star. Every studio put three or four of those pictures into production. And, and without exception, they all went down in flames because Sound of Music was the last hurrah of that kind of show, of that kind of movie, of that kind of musical. And nobody wanted to see Goodbye, Mr. Chips. And nobody wanted to see Lost Horizon. Nobody wanted other, to see Peter O'Toole sing. Nobody wanted to see Paint Your Wagon and see Lee Marvin sing. I'm Lee Marvin sing. I mean, dear God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they all those films were hugely expensive and they all dropped dead. And I think I say in the book that Sound of Music is the most expensive picture in the history of the movies because of all the money, because of all the money that, were, that was thrown after it in an attempt to reproduce it and every one of which failed. So you're, you're looking at well over $100 million, $130 million in, in, in 60s and 70s dollars 
that was thrown after The Sound of Music trying to replicate it, and none of them could succeed uh, because that audience had either was either dying out at the time or simply weren't interested in all these other carbon copies or attempted carbon copies. Well, and I always think of my grandfather who claimed that the last two movies he saw were Going My Way and Patton. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then he saw Patton again. Right, right, right. But Patton, yeah, Patton, Patton, all the people that went to see The Longest Day also went to see Patton. Right, but not Tor, Tor, Tor. No, they want to see, they want to see the battle, they want to see the fights we win, not the fights we lost. Yeah. So what was the last act for Zanuck? Uh, shortly after he fired Richard, uh, he was basically kicked upstairs, made, uh, uh, you know, chairman emeritus, a meaningless title. By that time, he'd begin to sh- he'd begun to show signs of dementia. Uh, he would fuzz out in the middle of a conversation, like a radio signal that suddenly disappeared, and there'd be some static, and then he'd focus again after thirty seconds, and this became more and more obvious, uh, and his 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 mental state uh, simply began deteriorating in what is now very familiar. Uh, at the time, this is in the seventies. Uh, it was much less familiar uh, because uh, he wasn't that old. He was he was not seventy years old even. He was he was still in his sixties, but he had early onset or what comparatively early onset dementia, and he ended up his wife, who he hadn't spoken to in a long time, like at least ten years since he went to France. Uh, he never told her he was going to France to make to go an independent production, and he never invited her to go with him. He just went. Um, but they were still legally married, and she took him back and nursed him uh, through uh, 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 weeks and weeks where he'd watch nothing but animated cartoons on television. That was his. That was what he'd been reduced to, mentally. Well, reading the last part where you're talking about the '70s, Fox certainly had some hits like Patton or you know Star Wars. Oh yeah, the French Connection. Yeah, they had, no, they had hits. It was not a studio without hits, but it was a studio uh, that was similar to all the other studios in that the, in that in that there was no continuum, there was no pattern except for those three or four years when Alan Ladd Jr. was running the place, where there was a definite studio style where you get a movie like The Turning Point, a kind of upscale uh, uh, soap opera, but with enough uh, to appeal to, to, to men in the audience as well. You know, very, very well done stuff. Uh, the sort of movie that Fred Zinneman would have made 15 years earlier. You know, a good script with a good director. But I think of that time period, and I find it hard to associate movies with studios generally. Sure. Except when the studio had a definite niche like Disney did. Oh, it has Jodie Foster and a talking cat in it? It must be Disney. <laughs> And Tommy Kirk. But yeah, I don't feel like studios are studios at that point anymore. They're like a rented space with a marketing department attached. They don't have an identity. The studios lost their identity. Uh, and that's something that was very expressly desired by Jack Warner, by Daryl Zanuck. You could t- you, I, I, I tell my kids at University of Miami that you could close your eyes and know which studio had made the picture by the sound of the orchestra. Yeah, <laughs> you really could if you saw the, if you saw enough movies, you could tell uh, a Warner Brothers soundtrack from any other soundtrack because the music is dubbed so loudly on a Warner Brothers film. Nobody else wanted to hear the music blasting quite as much as Jack Warner did. So you get Steiner and Korngold coming at you like a, 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 an army, you know, an army of musicians assaulting you. Uh, at MGM, you could barely hear the orchestra. Unless it was a musical, the music's dubbed where you can't hear uh, Herbert Stothard. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, because Herbert Stothard's right. not very interesting. Yeah. But, but, but and, and the same, you know, you could always tell Alfred Newman by the strings. 
or by Bernard Herrmann's presence. You know, but Bernard Herrmann did a lot of work at Fox because Alfred Newman liked him a lot. So most of Herrmann's major scores that aren't Hitchcock are done at Fox. Because again, Zanuck respected Alfred Newman and let him run the music department. He wasn't micromanaging. Uh, he, micro, he only micromanaged scripts. After that, you know, you have to hire department heads that you trust to do the job well. And that's why the department heads at Fox were there for 25 years. Yeah, for all that he was kind of a monster, it does seem like competence was rewarded and given the opportunity to do what it could do. Absolutely. He had his areas where he took control, but... No, he was... Would I have liked to work for Daryl Zanuck? Absolutely. Would I have wanted to be one of his kids? Good God, no. (laughs) Because you're going to end up twisted and damaged in some primary way if you're his kid. But if you're if you're working for him in a creative a creative capacity, I think it would have been a fascinating experience, and I think you would have come out of come out of it a higher skilled professional than you went in. So as you were saying, we're seeing 20th century as a logo again. You know, 90 years after the last purely 20th century pictures movie came out, what's the future for the various pieces of 20th century Fox? Do you have any sense? Well, I mean, Disney bought the company for the library. They they don't need another uh, another filmmaking component. They've got plenty of filmmaking components. They bought the library for streaming service, uh, for content for the streaming service, and for remakes. There's a lot of stuff there that can be repurposed and repackaged for a 21st century audience. Even it was made in 1967. There's a Nightmare Alley, which is the remake of Nightmare Alley, which is coming out in a couple of weeks, is just the first example. Uh, and you that that that's not a picture that you would think would be the first remake out of the box. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was the movie that everybody said, well, that's what happens. You let Tyrone Power pick a story. <laughs> you know, he lost money and Zanuck knew it was going to lose money, but he owed Power because Power had been a loyal company man and done everything Zanuck had wanted to do. So he called in his chips and Zanuck let him make this let him make this movie, even though he knew it. that's not how Tyrone Power's audience wanted to see him. And now, and you know, at the time, it lost half a million dollars, and it wasn't a terribly expensive picture. It's mostly interiors, but you know, fifty, sixty years later, that's one of the primary movies people remember Tyrone Power by. You know, so who was right and who was wrong? Well, they were both right. Zanuck was right in terms of nineteen forty-seven. Tyrone Power was right in terms of the twenty-first century. Right. But th- that's why Disney bought bought the the, the Also, of course, studio space is at a terrible, terrible premium with all the streaming services doing production. So uh, uh, just getting access to the Fox lot on Pico is no small thing. Uh, permanent access, as they say. And I'm sure it's have, it's heavily booked. But basically, it was a product buy. They bought it for the library and, and the streaming service, and they bought it for remake. And I'm sure it'll turn out to be a very positive deal. Look back 10 years from now, and I'm sure you'll see six or 10 very big movies that are repurposed out of that Fox library. Sound of Music 2? Well, that's one example. That's one example. Don't 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 laugh. Don't laugh. I'm sure they're thinking about it now. They're doing a live action remake of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. You think you you think they're too craven to try to remake the Sound of Music? Nope, no. They you can count on them trying to do something with the Sound of Music. have sung for a thousand years. The hills fill my heart with the sound of music. 
wants to sing every song it hears. Scott Iman's 20th Century Fox, Daryl F. Zanuck and the Creation of the Modern Film Studio, is out now from TCM and Running Press. Links will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. The Century Comedy Studio of the teens and 20s was no relation to any later studio with Century in its name. Actually, who Julius and Abe Stern, its owners, were relations to was Uncle Carl Limley, of the very large family, which was a very good business to be in, until it wasn't. Thomas Reeder, who we spoke to a few years ago, about his book Mr. Suicide, Henry Pathé Lehrman and the Birth of Silent Comedy, tells the story of this comedy studio's rise and fall and the interesting afterlife of the Stern Brothers in his book Time is Money, The Century, Rainbow, and Stern Brothers Comedies of Julius and Abe Stern from Bear Manor Media. All right, so the, the introduction and stuff... I mean, kind of admits that there's a reason this isn't a famous studio whose films we all know. So why is there a book about it? What what prompted you <laughs> to want to do well, that? Well, it's it's filling filling a gap in film history. I mean, the uh, Stearns and their comedies have been uh, written off over the years. You know, the uh, the, the famous line that uh, may be apocryphal of uh, our comedies are not to be laughed at. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of uh, <laughs> tarnished them from, uh, you know, ever since. And that line was... Uh, uh, bandied about back in the 19 teens. Um, the it's sort of, sort of they, like miracle pictures, you know, yeah, yeah. if it's a good picture, it's a miracle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but you know, they were very productive. Uh, you know, if you throw, uh, LKO into the mix, which, um, uh, Abe Stern was involved with at the, from the very beginning. And then two years later, uh, Julius became part of over a 15-year period, uh, they're responsible for uh, almost 900 uh, one- and two-reel comedies. And, uh, you know, so that's a considerable uh, output. And um, the fact that Universal didn't have its, didn't own its own theaters meant that they had to go out and sell their films, or Universal had to go out and sell its films on merit and cost. And I think uh, cost frequently predominated in that uh, decision on the part of exhibitors. Um, so the Stearns had to uh, churn out a reliable product that was uh, uh, sufficiently acceptable um, within, you know, fairly strict uh, budgetary considerations. Um, but, you know, it's uh, when I wrote the book about uh, Henry Lehrman, that covered LKO up to its end. And it got, got me to wondering, uh, you know, what became of uh, the Stearns and their films after that point. So that, that, that was kind of percolating in the back of my mind, and I decided to just follow it through. Cause for it's better a, or for worse. But. It's a pretty long stretch. I mean, it's like 13 or 14 years yeah. after, after LKO ceases to be. Um, all right. Well, so it's two Stern brothers, Julius and Abe. Uh, who were they? Well, they were born in Germany, and they were two of uh, seven siblings. And their sister, Rekka, 
uh, ended up marrying Carl Lemley, the head of the, the future head of uh, Universal. So Lemley, uh, one, on one of his visits to uh, Germany, uh, invited Julius to come back to the America with him. And that was back in 1903. This is before Lemley even got into the film business. So Julius was with him from the very beginning, you know, when they were still working, uh, selling uh, clothing. Uh, when Lemley decided to get into uh, the theater business, uh, Julius managed his theaters. And then uh, Lemley got into film distribution with Lemley uh, Film Exchange. And Julius was part of that. And when Julius or when Carl eventually decided to form Imp, Imp Films, uh, Julius managed that as well. So Julius was in the film business from the very beginning with Carl Lemley and uh, frequently, for the most part, was operating behind the scenes, but was uh, very influential in a number of uh, Carl's decisions. So he's kind of the original Lemley nepotistic relative in the movie business. That is correct. And uh, I'll be the first to admit that the Stern brothers uh, uh, benefited largely from uh, Carl Lemley's largesse. Yeah. Uh, you know, in 1917, I think it was when, uh, because of the uh, war tax on films, uh, Lemley decided to uh, shut down all uh, uh, short film production that that, that impacted Nestor and Joker and a bunch of other studios. Uh, the Lemelys, uh, I'm sorry, the Julius and uh, Abe's uh, LKO comedies were allowed to continue and their newly released century comedies were allowed to continue as well. So they, they benefited uh, in a big way from that relationship. And it sounded like the, Julius was often kind of used to as somebody who come in and tighten the belt on a studio, you know, get get costs in, <laughs> under control, and was not, not widely beloved as a result of that. And no, he was kind of the hatchet man, given a lot of the dirty work to do, but, uh, you know, he, he rose to the occasion and followed uh, followed Carl Emily's, uh, you know, dictates uh, pretty much to the letter, and sometimes overstepped his bounds, I think, from based on what I've been able to find out. Yeah. So. Now, do you feel that they had any aptitude for comedy or were they sort of the Leon Schlesinger of uh, <laughs> century comedies here? I think they were businessmen foremost. Uh, they were turning out a product. Uh, they did seemingly have a pretty good eye for talent because they developed a few comedians. I mean, Baby Peggy is uh, probably the most notable uh, uh, instance of that because she went on to a, you know, a fairly big career in the silent period. Uh, Wanda Wiley was another one of their discoveries. I mean, she's forgotten today, but she was uh, extremely popular for a few years there. But, the you know, while they didn't always have top flight uh, actors and actresses uh, starring in their films, uh, again, due to budgetary concerns, they always ha managed to hire good directors, good comedy directors and uh, good writers for their comedies. So, uh, you know, they the comedies were built on that foundation and uh, a number of the films that survive today. And uh, admittedly, that's a small number, but uh, are, are very good comedies. So, yeah. Who are some of the people? I mean, I saw Alf Goulding's name in there and I don't well, know director are... director wise. I mean, there was Fred Fishback, uh, Gus Mines, who went on to uh, direct right. for Roach, Alf, Al Golf, Alf Goulding, I should say, Arvid Gilstrom. Uh, Edward uh, Ludwig, who was directing under the name Edward Luddy at that point, uh, Jess Robbins, Charles Lamont, 
Sam Newfield, Sam Newfield, (laughs) you can write that name off, but yeah. um, But, you know, so they had some good directors uh, working there. Do you sense any particular trends within their films or was it really just whoever happened to be working there at the time? Was there any, any emphasis that they had? Do you think? (laughs) Well, I, I think they took a long, uh, it took them a while to find their footing. I mean, there, there, as I point out in the book, there are kind of four stages. Uh, the first stage, you know, this is after LKO was uh, setting up century comedies to star Alice Howell. And that was uh, successful for a couple of years until uh, her director, John Blystone and she defected. I'm not sure who went first, but they both ended up leaving. The second phase after uh, Alice Howe was gone, they were just bringing in comedy comedians left and right, but they had a lot of animal films, um, you know, with uh, um, Brownie the dog and so forth and, uh, and kid comedies. Uh, the third phase was uh, they started to get their footing and that's where they had kind of star series. And that was uh, the star series involved uh, Wanda Wiley, uh, uh, Eddie Gordon, Pete Gordon, um, um, who was the other guy? I'm drawing a blank here. Um, but Al, Al Alt was another one. And uh, when, so when had, is they, that? That's in the like 23, 24, 1925. And then in 1925, they started the Buster Brown series. And that was so uh, incredibly successful that that's when they decided to focus solely on um films, you know, series based on comic strips. So from the 1926 season on, that's all they did. They focused on comic strips and the comic strips became the uh, focus of attention. And they had a, there was a lot of turnover in the casts within those films. I mean, Buster Brown, um, that had uh, um, Arthur Trimble and Doreen Turner for the first uh, three years and Pete the Pup for those first three years. And then they, then Doreen Turner and Pete the Pup left uh, for the fourth year, and uh, Lois Hardwick and uh, Jerry the Dog took over. <laughs> newlyweds and their babies, uh, they had a rotating com- uh, cast of uh, newlyweds, but Snookums, played by uh, S- uh, Lawrence McKean, uh, he was the constant in that series. The Let George Do It series, that was uh, Sid Saylor's baby from day one, so he was uh, he was quite, quite a good comedian, and the films of his that survive are... Uh, pretty funny uh, I think uh, you know if you like comedies so that that was the focus for the last few years yeah and in terms of talent I mean I thought it was interesting that I mean the ones whose names I did recognize a lot of them were women comedians you know from Steve Massa's book so mm-hmm. uh, the Alice Howell I guess was was the star when the Stearns arrived there the LKO star and she stayed there for a bit uh, Wanda Wiley, like you say, I think Gail Henry turned up in there at some point. And oh yeah, yeah, Gail Henry was. Uh, uh, we uh, Alice Howe was the reason they they formed the uh, Century Comedy spinoff. I mean, she was the star and was the star for a couple of years there before uh, she uh, she decided to leave for whatever reason. Um, there were uh, most of the other uh, women stars like Lillian Byron and Edna Marion and. Constance Darling and Beth Darlington. I mean, they're 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 all minor names, but there were there were a few a few few good good names in there. 
And then as far as the male stars go, uh, you know, you had Max Swain for a while. You had uh, Huey Mack for a while. Harry Sweet uh, got his start with uh, Century Comedies. Uh, Charles Doherty, uh, Jack Cooper, Jimmy Adams, they would pop in and out of the uh, cast lists. Um, oh, Bartine Burkett was another name I've forgotten about. She she uh, she was big in silent comedy, and uh, she would star for the Stearns on and off as well. Okay. Yeah, so what was the, the, stu- the studio's progression in that time? So they took over, basically took over LKO. Um, I don't know, is it LKO? I want to say that just because of RKO, but maybe it's Elko. I don't know. Uh, yeah, well, it stands for Lehrman Knockout, so I've heard uh, it pronounced as okay. LKO. That makes sense then, yeah. Uh, okay. Right, who's going to argue with us at that point, you know, at this point? <laughs> maybe Peggy's even gone, so yeah. no one... <laughs> No one knows. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, give me, give me a sense of the progress of their studio over the teens and early twenties then. Well, they took over uh universal's initial studio uh, in when, when universal expanded its, uh, you know, footprint to a different area. Uh, they were on sunset and Gower. Uh, they were in an older structure that they rented from a woman named Blondu. It was the former Blondu's tavern that it had been expanded uh, by Nestor way back when they worked out of that and added to it up until 1926 when a, a fire totally destroyed the studio. So they moved down the street and took over the building that had been built back in, I think it was 1919. It was Francis Ford's studio. Uh, back then. Uh, so they took that over and uh, they stayed with that till 1929 when they got out of the business. But they turned the studio then over to uh, their nephews, Max and Arthur Alexander. So the nepotism kind of right. continues down the line. <laughs> but uh, So that's, that's pretty much the re- progression. And then with the end of the silent period, they uh, pretty much uh, got out of film and uh, enjoyed another 50 years of retirement or at yeah. least Julius's part. Yeah, so I mean, it close to the end of the silent period, Lemley just up and fires them one day, or you know, says, you know, we're not <laughs> we're not buying any more comedies from outside studios. What was up yeah. with that? He was, well, that was there a rather a fight cold over Thanksgiving, and a, a abrupt termination. I would say, uh, yeah. There, well, there had been some growing uh, friction between the uh, between them uh, over the years. I mean. Uh, Julius had risen to a point where he was one of the vice presidents of Universal, as well as running his own comedy studios. And uh, Abe was a secretary and treasurer at at one point of Universal. But um, I think the straw that broke the camel's back in that relationship was uh, Lemley's unceasing demands on the brothers. And uh, it got to the point where uh, both uh, Harry Carey and um, Eddie Polo, I guess it was, or was it Elmo Lincoln, uh, left because of uh, uh, friction between him and Julius. And um, so Lemley was pretty upset about that. And uh, so he, so I think in a huff, uh, Julius, Julius quit or was fired. One of the two. So they continued, uh, you know, uh, family relationships up through the uh, up through the uh, end of the twenties. Um, in 1926, uh, Julius and Abe reinvented their century comedies as the Stern Brothers comedies, 
And at that point on, they con concentrated on uh, running series solely based on uh, comic strips. The uh, two most notable were the Buster Brown series that lasted for four years. And there was the uh, Newlyweds and their babies uh, and their baby series with Snookums that lasted for final three years. And uh, Let George Do It, starring Sid Saylor. That was another one that lasted for three years. And then there were some others that lasted for one and two years that weren't quite as successful. But I suspect with this uh, reinvention of themselves, they probably were demanding more money from Universal. And, uh, and maybe Universal's need for uh, shorts just ran out. But whatever the cause, uh, it came to an end in 1929. Well, and as you point out, one of the results of that is that when uh, <clears throat> Carl Lemley would tell the story of Universal, the Stern brothers were noticeably absent. <laughs> Very absent. So I think that's part of the reason they've been uh, consigned to the dustbin of history, because there's nothing positive written about them by anyone. So what what did they do after uh, I mean, they, when did they stop making films, I guess, is the first well, question. Well, they, they stopped in early 1929, and what they had uh, already in the can uh, was released through uh, August of 1929. And from that point, they were pretty much out of the uh, film business. And I'm not so sure that they didn't want to get out anyway, because sound was looming on the horizon, and I I just got the feeling that they didn't didn't want to make that leap and uh, spend the money to uh, convert to sound. Right. Um, Abe, for the most part, as far as I can tell, aside from some real estate holdings, just went into retirement. Uh, he had uh, remarried back in the uh, early 20s and, um, you know, had a baby in the late 20s. So I think he just uh, enjoyed a happy retirement existence until he died in 1951. Uh, Julius was a little more involved. Um, he inherited. A, he was loaning out money because they both uh, they both retired uh, wealthy when a lot of other people were severely hurt by the depression. They had a lot of real estate holdings, and he would lend money out to other businesses. And one of the businesses he lent money to was uh, Henry Bergman's uh, restaurant in Hollywood uh, called Henry's. And uh, Bergman, I believe it was, uh, became ill and had to give up the restaurant. So it ended up in Julius's hands. Julius didn't want to run a restaurant, so he had it knocked down and, and built the Vine Theater in its place. And the Vine Theater is uh, <laughs> still there in a rather sad shape, I think. Uh, but it was run as a successful theater uh, easily into the 1960s. Um, he'll he also got involved with uh, some groups, some local groups in New York where he had moved to uh, that were uh, fighting for the, uh, um, the the secondary exhibitors, the people that would uh, exhibit second and third run films. And uh, and they were lobbying, you know, to have better terms uh, for, for renting their films because the studios were demanding outrageous uh, uh, rental charges for these uh, old films. Um, but aside from that, I think it was his real estate holdings for the most part that kept him involved in one form or another. Well, and he was involved with uh, European refugees or... Well, yeah, that's too. That too. That, that's he, uh, he never made a big deal about that. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, it was revealed that uh, Carl Emily was doing, had done the exact same thing. So I was uh, surprised and pleased to hear that uh, Julius was doing it as well. Whether Abe had any involvement in that, I don't know. Well, describe what they were doing. Well, uh, 
Julius would go over to uh, Europe every so often, you know, to Germany to uh, visit relatives and so forth. And he uh, he saw the writing on the wall. So he was first, uh, you know, uh, sponsoring uh, relatives to come over to the United States to emigrate to the U.S. Uh, and then it became friends of his relatives and uh, anyone he could talk talk into, you know, relocating. Um, he was happy to put put the money behind it. Uh, so he was uh, very generous in that fashion. Uh, you know, obviously a number of people didn't didn't see the writing on the wall, and they did not take up his offer, and that that did not work out as well for them. But uh, yeah, so um, I mean, looking at at what you can see of their work, you said not not very much. But uh, what do you you know what do you think about the output of their studios? Well, it's it's difficult to say because so few of their films have survived. Um, the ones that have survived, a number of them are quite good. Uh, the Buster Brown comedies, uh, a number of them have survived. And uh, they, for the most part, starred uh, uh, Pete the Pup as Tig. And Pete the Pup is just a, a charming presence and, yeah. <laughs> and always the high point of those films. But the films are charming comedies, or at least for the first couple of years until they became very routine. Um, so those were good films. I'm not so sure that the films that have survived survived because they were the best of their output and were released for home market. Um, that, that's a, that's an arguable point, but that was just kind of a gut feeling I had. You know, what we're seeing is pretty good, but there's a reason it's why we're seeing it. But uh, films like uh, Edna Marion's uh, Uncle Tom's Gal is a riot. Uh, uh, My Baby Doll uh, with Edna Marion, where she uh, plays, you know, she she breaks a mechanical doll, so she takes its part. That's very enjoyable. A number of the Wanda Wiley films are quite good. Her Thrilling Romance, which uh, has been shown on uh, Steve Massa and uh, Ben Modell's uh, silent uh, comedy watch party. That's a great little film. Uh, Queen of Aces is another uh, Wanda Wiley film that's very enjoyable. Um, so there's there's a number of good films there. Um, and, 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 of course, the Alice Howe films, too. Right. And Ben released that double set, and uh, Neptune's Naughty Daughter and uh, In Dutch are both on that, and they're both very funny films. We talked about this with, uh, in the la- you know, in a recent episode with uh, Rob Stone about Vim comedies. You mm. know, partly it's just interesting to see how these not famous studios, you know, manage to work and keep it going during this time. I mean, it's all very experimental in the film industry then. Um, what, you know, what do you think their, just their, their sort of history as a business and their, their adaptability was? Well, again, they were fortunate because, uh, they had that connection with Carl Emily and Universal. So they always had Universal available to, they had a guaranteed outlet for their films. Every year they would work out a contract with Universal. They would manufacture the, uh, produce the comedies for somewhere in the neighborhood of 5,000 and then sell them for considerably more to Universal and then Universal would distribute them. So they had a ready guaranteed outlet from their films for day one. Uh, some of the uh, smaller competitors didn't have that guaranteed outlet. And, uh, you know, even people like Roach, you know, uh, would would have it their films distributed through one, uh, you know, through MGM for a while, through uh, Pathé for a while. Um, 
so they 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 were always uh you know mindful of having an outlet for their films but for uh, the Stearns, they always had Universal as uh, in their back pocket until they didn't. Well, yeah, until they didn't. But yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah. How did that work? Did they did Universal? I mean, did they just like sell a package to theaters? You want this Hoot Gibson Western? You're you know, and you, and we'll, you get a uh, a century comedy with it because you got to have a comedy. <laughs> well, it shifted over the years. Uh, you know, for a while, the LKOs and the uh, centuries were being sold as, you know, one season's package to theaters. And theater, okay. theaters could uh, either opt to take them or not opt to take them. Uh, then it, when it came to the Star Series, uh, at some point they switched over to say, well, you can buy uh, one set of Star's films as opposed to the whole year's package. You can just buy... Uh, 12 Alt films or 12 Wanda Wiley films and so forth. By the time uh, by the time the Buster Brown films and the uh, comic strip films were came along, they were selling them, selling the whole comic strip series. So it, it's it changed over the years. Yeah, I mean, it seems like <clears throat> you know they're they're probably playing these things for three days anyway, or maybe a whole week. I mean, it's just a lot of work to like individually book all these things. It it makes sense to me that if if you like Wanda Wiley, why not just say, "Ah, oh, we're gonna have Wanda Wiley this year," and you know, oh, yeah. or, or whatever. Um, I don't know. It's just you know, you read sometimes about all the work that went into, uh, you know, running a theater back then, you know. I'm going to have something for three days, so I'm going to build a whole jungle set on the outside of my theater and, you know, hire kids dressed as Tarzan to walk around downtown <laughs> handing out flyers or whatever, you know. And now movie theaters, you know, they, they can't even – there's a there's one by my house that has, like, the things for posters outside, and they won't even put posters in them. You know, they've, they've <laughs> got, like – they've got ads for their – you know, their loyalty program out there because they don't ever have to change that. They just let it fade to blue. Um, or or signs that point to their website so you can go and see the advertisements there. You know? Right, right. I mean, it, you know, nobody cares. But, it, you know, I guess back then, you know, it was just what you had to do to make it as an exhibitor. You went through all that. So, Well, uh, Julius used to... Uh, you know, repeatedly tout how he had managed the theater, um, you know, in his earliest days. So he, he knew the needs of the exhibitors and the, and the, uh, and, and could empathize with them and was giving them what he, what he strongly felt they needed. So that was a, a decent product for a decent price. And, uh, you know, their output filled the bill in that regard. Okay, so there's a certain amount of pride in what they did that they, you know, were doing this professionally and giving people something that's of quality. Oh, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. But they, uh, <laughs> they, they, they ran their business very strictly, and uh, right. you know, budgets had to be met, and uh, they had to approve every uh, little expenditure uh, to the point that probably drove their directors uh, crazy and why they had a revolving door of directors and so yeah. forth. But that, that could grow old pretty quickly. But, you know, they did what they had to do to, uh, you know, keep the doors open. Yeah. All right. So this book grew out of the uh, Henry Lerman book. Uh, what's, what's next? What, what story do you feel like telling 
next well i you know because i have this affinity for universal every uh, every book i've written to date has tied into universal in some fashion or other i'm now taking a, a good hard look at um, universal's earliest uh, uh, consistent comedy output and that's the joker comedies which were uh, released from 1913 to 1917 and so not much has been written about them either. So that's uh, that's that's what I'm dabbling in now. Whether it'll amount to anything, that remains to be seen, but I'm, I'm hopeful. Thomas Reader's Time is Money, the Century, Rainbow, and Stern Brothers comedies of Julius and Abe Stern from Bear Manor Media is out now. Links will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Scott Iman and Thomas Reeder, and to Cita Zink at Running Press. Music is by Kevin McLeod. A few of our favorite things are authors and listeners to this podcast. Whichever one you are, please subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. The magic words, Julie Andrews.